Detroit Today on 101.9 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. We have spent this summer in WDET's book club facilitating conversations about this year's pick, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. We talk with authors and experts and, of course, with you about what the novel means in the context of the things that we see in our world today. You can tune into our book club discussions right here on the program, online, and at our Facebook group, which is called the WDET Book Club. The 1952 novel, Invisible Man, is a seminal work of fiction and influenced countless authors and works of literature that came after it. Invisible Man's interrogation of race and power, inequality and identity feels really pertinent in a world that is currently reckoning with the prevailing lineage of systemic racism. Tonight at 8 p.m., we're going to hold our third and final virtual book club meetup event to talk about how the novel relates to current political movements. You can find more information and RSVP at WDET.org slash events. But today on the show, we want to talk with someone who joined us for our last virtual event, an expert on the novel and on 20th century African-American literature. Valerie Prince is an associate professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University and author of the book, Burning Down the House, Home in African-American Literature. During last week's conversation, she brought up a point that made a lot of us stop in our tracks and think. She asked whether or not black literature truly exists in America, or if works by African-American authors must inherently be written to cater to a white audience or a white lens. It was such a compelling question, and it sparked such a compelling conversation that we had to ask Valerie Prince back here to continue that conversation on the air. This, of course, was before the shooting of an unarmed black man seven times in the back by police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And after the massive protests that we've seen taking place in Kenosha and now all over the country in response. It was also before a 17-year-old white person got an AR-15 and went out and killed two people during those protests while the police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, saw him as a compatriot, saw him as somebody there to help them keep, quote-unquote, law and order. If you think about the things that we have seen happen in the summer of 2020, if you think about the way that we are talking about racism and bias, I think it's not a big leap from the question about whether black literature exists and can exist in a society like America to the question of whether blackness itself can actually exist in a society that does not value it. Can you be black, truly black, in a country where black life is not valued? Can you be black in a country where armed white citizens are treated so differently than unarmed black men? 
That's where we want to continue the conversation today. And we want to hear from you as well. Has this current movement for racial justice changed the way that you see things in this society? Has it changed the way that you interpret blackness and whiteness? Has it changed the way you think about the concept of white supremacy and what it means, what it means for black people to live in a society that is so imbued, whose institutions are so rooted in that bias? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. And I want to welcome Valerie Prince, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Wayne State University, to our conversation. Valerie, it is great to have you with us again. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So I want to start with uh, the, the insight that you brought to that conversation last week uh, and, and talk about this concept of blackness as it exists in literature in this country and whether it can exist, given that all of the publishing infrastructure, all of the mechanisms by which things that African-Americans write ha- to be published, um, all of those things are controlled uh, by, uh, wh- by white people and by white institutions. Uh, you said that you weren't sure that African-American literature really exists in America. I want to give you a chance to, to expand on that idea. Well, I think that if you stop and reflect on the purpose and the role of literature, what, why do human beings create literature, and you look around the globe, it, you would probably be hard-pressed to find any group that lays claim to having produced a literature when the decisions about how that work gets published and disseminated and and even what gets um, con- classified as literature is controlled, you know, by like, let's say 90% of people outside of that group. And I know that's probably a very provocative idea, but I mean, it's the reality. I'm, I, and I think Publishers, Week, Publisher Weekly, Publishers Weekly in 2018 published an article where they said 87% of the people working in the publishing industry identified as Caucasian. And that was including a broad, I mean, they may well have been including the, um, the, the, the custodians, you know, everybody who was on salary. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge percentage is disproportionate. It's not representative of the population of the nation. So if you're if you're thinking about the role that literature plays, who else yields that much control to um, de- to to make demands about what the actual literature looks like mm. to another group of people? Yeah. So, I mean, you're a black author, uh, and you have spent a lot of your professional career writing and thinking about black authors and their work. 
when African-Americans are writing these stories, telling these stories, uh, weaving these narratives, what effect does the whiteness of the publishing industry, what effect does the lack of outlets that are controlled uh, and founded by African-Americans have on that on that writing process? I mean, it, it seems that uh, if we accept the, the premise of what you're arguing, um, that there's a, a tangible effect on the writing itself and the decision that the decisions that writers make about how to tell the stories that they want to tell and which stories to tell in the first place. So take, for instance, um, Jasmine Ward, uh, her book, um, Salvage the Bones, or um, Mama Day by Gloria Naylor, or Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison. You, these these are three African-American women writers writing at different um times but their their work has been very well received and it's it's brilliant work so there's I'm not knocking the writing of the work at all I enjoy these books but if you read the text embedded in the text are clear nods um, where they demonstrate mastery not just of African American culture but clear awareness uh, recognition and um, uh, they show that they have studied, let's say, in these particular novels, they they know Greek um, uh, Greek mythology. It's like the the even though the work is centered around African Americans and their particular specific um, place and time, each of those stories um, in part demonstrates a mastery because they overlay that African-American narrative with, um, or they lay it upon the framework of Greek mythology. Mm. Mm. Uh, as always, again, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today. We've got a, a number of people already queued up uh, to participate in this conversation before we get to them, though, Valerie, I, I want to talk about the larger questions that I asked in the intro. So if we accept the idea that African-American literature in its sort of purest form doesn't really exist in a society where all of the publishing infrastructure and mechanisms are controlled by white people and our white institutions, um, I think it says something very interesting about the things that we're seeing happen uh, in our country right now. And this this shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, by white police, uh, unarmed man uh, trying to leave the scene uh, of, of an interrogation, I guess, uh, and is shot as he's trying to get into his car. Uh, and then more recently, uh, a white teenager, a 17-year-old with an AR-15, shows up to the protests that that shooting sparks and kills two people. Uh, but there's video of him milling around with the police even after he's done this, uh, not being responded to in quite the same way uh, as Jacob Blake. 
I, I think there is a legitimate question about whether blackness it truly exists. In other words, the freedom to be an African American uh, in this in this society itself is in question, I think, and thrown into question by the things that we're seeing happen, uh, thrown into question by the history of this country. Um, and it, it raises, I think, a fundamental question about whether you can be black in a society that is controlled by institutions that are rooted in white supremacy. It really is the same question, I guess, on a maybe broader scale uh, that, that as the one that you're asking about black literature. Yeah, I think what I think there is a tension. Obviously, there's a tension. But when in 2008, we elect um, the first African-American man as president, there's this conversation that emerges about post-blackness, mm. which strikes me in some ways as troublesome as the conversation we have to have in this moment in 2020 when we have a very different, probably a direct response to electing Barack Obama in 2008 is the election of Donald Trump in 2016. I think it's I think it's on the same. It's a continuum, and the issue is not so much whether blackness exists. It does exist, but the question is how it gets codified, mm. and who gets to determine how it gets codified. So that when someone is tweeting "law and order," that is very clearly. A, a frame of reference that allows for uh, a 17-year-old white kid with a assault weapon to not be seen as a murderer mm. when a person walking away because of whatever reason from the police not obeying his command can be, it can seem justifiable that he gets shot seven times. Um, it's It's about it's, blackness exists because it's a culture. We meet, we have music, we have food, we have dance, we have all of these things, uh, a way of speaking, a way of just being and seeing and living in the world. But what does not exist are the mechanisms by which these things get codified mm. and, and, and communicated outside of our culture. Mm. Mm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get to your calls. Martha in Lake Orion, Mike and Canton, Karen in Detroit, we will hear from you next. And if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Here's an update from WDET General Manager Mary Zatina. At the beginning of June, WDET shared the news that we needed to raise $2 million before our fiscal year ends September 30th. You are responding in a generous and heartwarming way. Hundreds of current members made an extra gift. 700 long-lapsed members joined again. We welcome you back with open arms. 
and over 500 brand new members made their very first gift to WDET because they, like you, appreciate what we do and want to support this nonprofit community service. We have well over a million dollars to go, but there is a spring in our step and a song in our heart knowing we travel this journey with you. Thank you. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Valerie Prince, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Wayne State University, author of Burning Down the House, Home in African American Literature. We're talking about African American literature and its place in a society dominated by white institutions. We're also talking about blackness in a society dominated by white institutions. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Karen in Detroit. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for uh, having me on, Stephen. I think this mm-hmm. is a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, I would like your guest, to, if she could talk about, she mentioned Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and uh, how they're, um, literature and stories had influences from Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if if, you, if those authors could even speak if they were with us all. Uh, you know wh- what that influence came from because people know that it's been acknowledged that African literature and storytelling and proverbs were in- influenced Greek mythology. <laughs> I learned about African American literature. In the 70s, I took courses at one of the premier African-American studies programs, in my opinion, at Indiana University. Hmm. And in terms of white institutions, it is true. White institutions do have control. I worked at a a black institution where I had great influence as the first black-owned TV station and news director and totally covered and had perspective that was controlled by African-Americans. So it does happen. I think African-American literature does exist, but I think we also have to examine uh, and and greater decision-making at the table makes sense. Mm. But what do the authors say? Would they say that they were codified in some kind of way to have a particular point of view, or also they were part of an educational system that taught certain things, and those educational systems may not have had as broad a range of uh, acknowledgement of what the sources of literature are about. I certainly was fortunate enough to have that perspective. Hmm. Karen, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Uh, Valerie Prince, react to what she's saying here. Well, I think that I think that these authors were certainly, if they were here to speak, would say that they are certainly contributing to African American literature. That is exactly what, and I think in a certain way they have done that. And I'm not trying to take away anything from what they've done. And in terms of um, the point that I am making, is that without the nod to the Greek literature, for example, and those three works that I mentioned by Naylor and uh, Jasmine Ward and Toni Morrison, the works themselves may or may not get read as readily. Mm. Um, And let me give you just, this is a personal example. So my book, you've mentioned Burning Down the House. I wrote the book while I was a professor at Hampton University, which is an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And I sent out the proposal 
on Hampton letterhead like 30 times and I got 30 rejections. And then I got um, a fellowship at Harvard uh, at the Du Bois Institute. And I printed the same letter. <laughs> with different on, letterhead. <laughs> with different letterhead. And within a week, I had I sent it out six times. And within a week, less than a week, I had two uh, acceptances. Hmm. The book, the words did not change. The book did not change. What changed was the letterhead. And so when I'm talking about what gets received and what gets heard, I'm talking about the ability for people to recognize in the African-American literature themselves. And the people who are making decisions have to be able to see themselves. And I don't know about that. Have to. Hmm. The way it tends to operate is that they look for evidence of themselves to demonstrate some level of mastery. Hmm. And credibility, right? And credibility. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Karen, again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Kim in Detroit. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Um, on the subject that you're talking about, I wanted to mention Mr. Dudley Randall, mm-hmm. who started mm-hmm. the Broadside Press mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of exactly what you're talking about. And right. he had the people like Don Lee and Nikki Giovanni. And it's only relevant if we think it is. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, Kim, I'm, I'm glad you called and, and brought that up. Dudley Randall, of course, uh, started that press here in the city of Detroit as well. And so that's a wonderful uh, sort of counter, I guess, to the, to the idea of white publishing institutions uh, in this country. And and I, I don't think it undermines the central point here, which is that uh, so much of the public publishing industry is controlled by white institutions that in order for black literature to survive or thrive on its own, you have to start uh, other presses. And, and uh, W. Randall is someone who absolutely did that. Uh, uh, so thanks again for the call and the comments. Let's go to Mike in Canton. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really, you know, I, I'm more, I'm frustrated with your take on the events that happened regarding Jacob Blake. Okay. Their video clearly shows he carried a knife in his hand after he struggled and fought off the cops. Okay. He had a knife in his hand. That's actually that not, that's not true. Um, there was a knife that was in his car, which he didn't have as the officers. I mean, if you've seen the video, what you see is the officers chasing him to the car, grabbing his shirt, and shooting him in the back. So, Mike, that's that's just not true. Black people? Because if they were, they're doing a really bad job. I'm sorry, say that again, Mike? If cops were out there trying to kill black men... They're doing a really bad job because not that many black men get killed. Twice as many white men get killed by cops every year. Right. Mike, do you know that 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 it's not about the numbers, but the percentages? I mean, if if more black people were killed by cops than white people, I mean, it would be it would be an absurd overrepresentation. Black people are only 12 percent of the population, something like 25 to 30 percent of People killed by cops are African-American, which represents an overrepresentation 
uh, of violence against black people. Mike, I, I really do appreciate that you listened to the show and I appreciate that you called in. Um, I, I obviously disagree with uh, with some of the things that you're saying and would encourage you to to do some reading and expanding maybe of the world that you're living in to be able to to see these things in a little bit of a different light. Uh, I think it's really important now that we all try to do that, especially white America. We really need you to lean into knowledge and understanding of what it is like to be African-American in this country. Again, Mike, thanks for the call. Um, I want to quickly go to Martha in Lake Orion. Martha, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. I I represent a very different perspective in regard to the fact that I was raised in cow country up in the thumb, and I lived there until I was 52 and taught school. When I moved to Lake Orion in December of 99, Mm -hmm. um, shortly after that, I did a lot of Barnes & Noble, and they would put out a quarterly newsletter promoting books that they thought were important and significant Mm -hmm. and something of newcomers a bit. One name that popped out to me was Bernice McFadden, Hmm. and my white area library actually had the book and read it. Hmm. I loved it. I loved being immersed into a culture that was totally different from anything I had grown up with in 52 years. But I I would like to ask Dr. Prince, do you consider something like Bernice McFadden literature. Martha, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time, and I do want to give Valerie Prince a chance to, to respond. Is that literature? Well, I have to admit to not knowing her work, mm. so I, I can't specifically respond to the, her work. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Valerie Prince, uh, professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University, author of Burning Down the House, Home in African-American Literature. Thank you so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. That's going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Join us tonight at 8 p.m. for our last WDET Book Club virtual event, wdet.org slash events to register. We'll talk again tomorrow.